know you guys are wondering what's going on with, uh, with all the candy and stuff up here. Uh, this is a reward for anybody, for the first person to memorize all the names that we are going to study in, uh, in our study of Nehemiah today. So, uh, so start cramming right now because we got a pop quiz at the end on the names. And this is all yours if you, I'm just kidding, that's really not what it is. Uh, try not to be too distracted by it, kids. I know it looks so good. Um, my, my kids are, you know, if they saw this, they'd be like, oh, dad's preaching on heaven today. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, we're not, we're not preaching on heaven today. You, you know, you heard the, um, the chapter that we're going to be studying. Uh, we're going to be going into Nehemiah chapter eight. Um, last, uh, last week we talked about, uh, the importance of passing on the baton and avoiding sacred cows. And I had a thought after the service uh, that really the most sacred cow that you'll find, the, the highest, the most sacred cow that you'll find in America, in, in most churches, is not traditional music, but contemporary music. Uh, and I was having a conversation with Christina about how many people will leave a church because they don't like the music. Um, and, and so it becomes a sacred cow, it becomes an idol. Uh, which is a horrible thing. And I thought, man, that would be a, a great P.S. to last week's sermon. I better put it at the, at the beginning of this week's message. So uh, last week was about uh, passing the baton. Uh, as, as we've been studying the book of Nehemiah and we come to the, the eighth chapter, you know, we've seen that this is a story of God's redemption. This is all about God's redemption, how he saves and how he restores and renews what belongs to him. Uh, Jerusalem. In our story here, Jerusalem has been overthrown, and it had become basically a ghost town. Uh, you know, while the, the Israelites had been overtaken by the Babylonians and moved to various regions, and Jerusalem was basically evacuated. I mean, if there was ever uh, a city that could represent death, Jerusalem, just prior to the time of, of this book, uh, Jerusalem would have been that city. And only God can cause what is dead to come back to life. That's what he does with his people. And Jerusalem is a picture of that process. Jerusalem is what we would call a living illustration or maybe even a a living parable of God's ability to restore and renew, to redeem what is dead and what is broken. Now, in discussing the importance of understanding the history of Israel, Paul said this to the Corinthians. He's explaining why we even have stories like this in, uh, in our scriptures. He says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. It's in there so that we don't crave the evil things that they also crave. See, when we, when we see what happened to Israel, when we see how they were overtaken because they basically conformed to the world, it should cause us to avoid what they fell into, the trap that they fell into. It should cause us to avoid craving for evil things at all costs, lest we fall into the same fate individually as Israel did collectively. But God is merciful. Praise the Lord. Yeah, God is merciful. He's, he's, uh, he loves us, and he's a God of new beginnings and second chances, because even when we fail him, and don't be mistaken, every single person in here, and every person in every church that's ever come before us, at some point, 
will fail God. But even when we fail him, his love for us never fails and never lessens. Uh, And so it's out of his great love, it's out of this mercy and this incredible love that he has for us as fallen creatures that he redeems and restores what is not only broken, but what is dead. And that's what the whole history of the book of Nehemiah is all about. But while God redeems us just as we are, uh, he loves us too much to leave us there. So yeah, our attitude as a church is come as you are. You know, I don't care what people are wearing or you know, what their attitudes are beforehand. I don't care. But God loves us too much to leave us where we are. He's always changing us. He desires to teach us, to instruct us, to, to, to lead us and guide us in his ways. And his ways are diametrically opposite the ways that we were raised in, the ways of humanity, the ways that we think and act. See, in our fallen nature, we don't think like God. We don't act like God. Uh, we don't love like God. In our fallen nature, we don't value the things that God values. Now, God theoretically, you know, the moment a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God is all-powerful, so theoretically, he could just impute a whole new set of values into a person. And that would make things a lot easier, right? I mean, it would confuse everybody else, like, dude, what happened to you just yesterday? You know, you were doing this, and that you were cussing, and today you hate cussing, you know, but it's not like that. Instead, it's a gradual process. You know, we, we are redeemed, but the process of restoration and renewal is something that takes a lot of time. See, he changes us by working in us and by working with us so that the changes that we make, the changes in our lives, are not just in accordance with his will, although they are in accordance with his will, but they're also in accordance with our will. Because when those changes are made in accordance with our will, we like it a lot more. You know, if, it's, if we're forced to, to value something and, whoa, what happened to me yesterday? Whoa, you know, that's not my will. You know, it would be, it would be confusing. But see, the, the reality is uh, that we all require God's discipline and his instruction in our lives. Um, if you want to turn to, to Second Peter for just a second, real quick, um, I wanted to, to see something out of Second Peter and how it corresponds with Nehemiah. Just chapter 1. Uh, of Second Peter, and just keep a finger there and a, and a finger back in you know, Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, Peter said this at the beginning of, of his second letter. Uh, in his greeting, he says, um, verses 2 to 4, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in, that is in the world by lust. See, this is such a great uh, such a thorough description of this changing process, the, the complete redemption and the process of renewal. See, we, we aren't just partially redeemed. He didn't just say, well, you know, I'll, I'll put a bid on you, and, you know, if you, if you happen to become, you know, a, a decent person because I've put this bid on you, then I'll buy the rest of you. No, he buys us completely up front so that we are fully redeemed, and so that we have what Peter refers to as uh, we become partakers of the divine nature. And, of course, we're not talking about human nature there. 
We're talking about God's nature. Only God has a divine nature. And by his grace, we become partakers of this divine nature. So, uh, so here in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen the wall completely restored. Stay in Second Peter there for a second. We've seen the wall uh, completely restored in an amazing uh, 52 days. And that was the first step in not only uh, restoring, but, but renewing and protecting Jerusalem. Uh, as Peter continues, he describes this, this systematic process uh, which kind of corresponds to the process of building the walls in our own lives, brick by brick by brick. And he writes, he continues, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And as you go through this, you can kind of picture brick after brick after brick, the process of restoration and renewal. You can almost picture these virtues being placed one on top of another, just like you would put bricks on top of one another. And as we grow in these godly virtues, the walls and the gates in our own lives against people who hate our guts, against the enemy, uh, against opposition, the gates and the walls in our own lives are built and fortified as well. Now, before we get to chapter 8 of Nehemiah, you can, you can go ahead and turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8 now. Um, before we begin that, chapter 7 actually ended with a verse that serves as a transition between Nehemiah having appointed leadership in the city, uh, people to whom he could pass on the proverbial baton. Uh, so it, it's kind of a go-between between that and this incredible spiritual hunger that overcomes the city of Jerusalem, the people who are living in the city of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, we read, Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So this is exactly where chapter 8 starts. Remember, you know, when this was written, there weren't chapter breaks. This was written as all one big thing. Uh, so even though there's a chapter break, there's no break in the story. This is a, a continuous uh, story that Nehemiah is telling us. And so when we read uh, the next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, we understand that that's exactly, you know, it's leaving off with the last chapter, or the last verse in, uh, in verse 7. Uh, verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And all the people... Well, you don't start a sentence with and. So see, it's a, it's a continuation. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. The first thing that, that I catch here is that Nehemiah says they gathered as one man. Uh, that's an interesting way of just telling us that their hearts were all feeling the same thing. The same thing was going on in everybody's heart. It, they, they were of one accord. And so what's interesting here is that nobody passed out flyers, you know, hey, you know, let's gather over at the square at you know, 5 o'clock and uh, you know, this is what's going to happen. Nobody passed out flyers. There was no word of mouth. There was no organizing committee, uh, no planning, nothing. There's just this spontaneous gathering, uh, this assembly. What, what provoked this assembly? Hunger. The people are starving. A deep spiritual hunger. 
is what caused this to happen. They all had this craving for God, and they realized that it could only be satisfied by being taught straight out of the scriptures. They didn't want to sing. They didn't want to sit around and, you know, talk about their feelings and their thoughts about God, you know. They they didn't want to do all that stuff. They wanted to hear from God himself. They didn't want to hear from anybody else. They wanted to hear from God. And when you want that, there's only one place to find it, and that is in his word. Now, now we're going to get real quick so that you guys can stop being distracted by all the candy up here. Uh, we're going to get to this illustration here in a minute. Imagine a diet where you're trying to satisfy real and prolonged hunger by eating Doritos. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I, I probably like Doritos as much as anyone else. Uh, you know, the spicy ones, I, I'm kind of a chicken to try because, yeah, yesterday. Christina likes spicy too, and, and she had one, and she's like, wow, this is so hot. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll try it tomorrow after church. You know, I don't know. We'll see. I like Doritos as much as anyone else. But how many Doritos do you have to eat to be nutritionally satisfied? A million, gazillion, bajillion. It's not going to happen. You will not be nutritionally satisfied by eating uh, Doritos. It's all filler, and that's it. Now, when you're hungry, you want to have a meal. Uh, I mean, let's say that that you came in here today, and you hadn't had anything to eat in two or three days. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have, uh, you know, a, a bag of Doritos, or would you rather have a nice prime rib? Now, that, that's a no-brainer, right? We all, we all know the answer to that question. Now, some of you may remember um, what I saw last year when I went and visited my college and how unbelievably upset I got. You guys have probably never seen me that upset on Facebook. Uh, as I went into the chapel where, when I first became a Christian, I used to go and pray and worship. Um, and as I went in there, they had books from every major world religion and some minor ones, too, stacked up on these shelves. Um, and, and, and then on the bottom shelf, they had a couple Bibles. Um, yeah, they, they had incense, uh, so that when you lit the incense, the smoke would rise up onto the Bibles. They were right underneath the Bibles. And they had these rugs that you, you, know, you roll up for Muslims uh, to pray on. And if you remember, man, I, I was upset. Let me, t- let me show you guys what I saw last year. I saw this. I saw junk. Junk food. Now, I, I need somebody to volunteer. Uh, yeah, Maddie, Maddie's hand goes up first. Okay. I can't call on you because you're my daughter. I have to be impartial. So, Sam, go ahead and come on up. <laughs> Your hand was like in record time, though, Maddie. No doubt about that. Sam, what, I, what I'm going to ask you to do is to find the healthiest thing you can on this table. The, the most nutritionally... What here represents the most, the most nutrition you can possibly find? What's the uh, nutrition for? Well, don't go through all the nutrition. Just take it. <laughs> We're going to be here all day, you guys. I hope nobody has plans after church. Which one? Probably if you're low on sugar, you can have some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you'll be over in sugar, right? Yeah, see, the, the fact is, you know, you see all this stuff, and you get drawn to all this stuff, and look at the nice, bright colors and everything, but see, what you're missing is that the most nutritionally valid thing on here is a subway car that's hidden underneath. 
I tricked you, Sam. Go ahead, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Um, welcome to America. Welcome to humanity, where we want spiritual junk food. And the real stuff just gets put aside. We don't want the, the, the good stuff. We want spiritual junk food. And see, this is the difference between the Word of God and anything else that the world has to offer. All this stuff, you know, there's Oprah right there. You know, there, there's, uh, you know, the, the Dr. Chopra, you know, all kinds of stuff. Spiritual junk food in comparison to the Word of God. That's the difference. In comparison to the scriptures, everything else is just spiritual junk food that might offer this illusion of satisfaction or uh, you know, a sugar rush, you know, a spiritual sugar rush. Um, but it's all temporary. It's all filler. And none of it has any nutritional value. The reality is that every single one of us and every single one of uh, the people that every single one of us knows wants to get answers to life's toughest questions. Every single person on the face of the planet has a spiritual hunger, at least at some point, before they harden their heart. But everybody starts there. Everybody wants some sort of guidance. Everybody wants answers. And they're acting out of malnutrition and starvation when they pick this stuff. And that's why people are craving the Word of God because they've just been living forever on this stuff. And so, as one, these people go to the one person they're sure could get it for them, and that is Ezra. So let's, let's see how this plays out. Verses 2 and 3. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the setting here is the first day of the seventh month, uh, and Ezra takes out the word of God, takes out the word of the Lord, the law, and begins reading from the law of Moses. And how wonderful is it, if you understand the symbolism here, how wonderful is it that he's reading it right in front of the water gate. If you remember back to our, uh, our, our lesson in chapter 3, when we were talking about the symbolism of the gates, uh, the, the, we, were, we saw that the, the, so the water gate represents cleansing, spiritual cleansing, but it also represents a source of nourishment. Remember, the, the psalmist said in the first psalm that if you're meditating on what you find in God's word, you're like a tree with this abundant source of water. You have more water than you know what to do with if you are meditating on God's word. So th that's what the water gate represents. Is it coincidence that that's where they're gathered? You know, it might seem like, uh, like coincidence that the people just kind of went there, you know, because that's the place to go. Uh, but I choose to believe that God designed this situation to have a deeper symbolism that speaks to us in pictures rather than just speaking to us in words. But how ironic that the water gate represents the cleansing power of God, which removes all corruption. But in our culture, when you think about the water gate, <laughs> you're thinking about political corruption. All of a sudden this week I was like, water gate, what? water gate. That's like, yeah, wow, how ironic is that? The water gate represents cleansing and nourishment, and that's where the people are gathering on their own, in one accord. And so all these people, men, women, and children, they gather together from sunrise until midday. 
sunrise to midday, to hear Ezra read from the scriptures, specifically from the book of the law. And he's referring to the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. Um, And you have to love the fact that that includes books like Numbers and Leviticus, which are two books which even your your average Christian struggles uh, to, to stay attentive to uh, when it's being read. I mean, let's face it, if you were to, to read the book of Leviticus to the average person, they'll struggle to pay attention. Uh, if you were to go through the book of Numbers and start going through one of those genealogies, they, they might drift off to sleep. Uh, but here, <laughs> you know, uh, here that's not what's going on. Here in front of the Watergate, Ezra reads from the law for over six hours. Over six hours. I mean, We've got it really easy with an hour and a half, don't we? There's a big difference between an hour and a half and six hours. Man, we've got it easy, but this is where real restoration, real renewal begins. Redemption has already happened. God has already redeemed what belongs to his, but restoration is a much longer, much more complicated process. True restoration always begins in a person's life when they are ready to turn to God's word to answer the questions in their life, to get guidance and leading and advice and wisdom spoken into their lives. It has to be God's word. You won't be restored by watching Oprah. You won't be renewed by watching some clown of a, of a televangelist tell you that, you know, if you want to really be holy, you better send more money. You know, that, that's not what does it. You know, and they'll tell you, you know, just send your money in and you'll hit the jackpot with every poll, you know, with God, you know. That is spiritual junk food. And that is, uh, you know, that's what the, the world sees. If you look out at the world, you see an all-you-can-eat buffet of spiritual junk food. Now, I didn't have enough money to buy uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet of spiritual junk food uh, to illustrate, but you get the point down here. Uh, it's spiritual junk food. True restoration and true renewal must begin with God's Word. And I believe that we are actually in a time in history, a very specific time in history, that the prophet Amos uh, spoke of when he wrote in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 of his book. He said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Because they're looking every place except in their Bible. They're looking every place except the right place. They're looking across the land instead of just looking in scriptures. See, the reality is, people are so, so desperately hungry for the word of God. And most of the time, they don't even realize how hungry they are. They feel that hungry, but have you ever been, been hungry for something, and, and you're, you know, maybe you'll wake up and you'll be like, oh man, I'm I've got this craving, but I, I can't exactly put my finger on it. I mean, there's something that I'm, I'm craving, but I have no idea what it is. And so you just start picking out, hoping that, you know, by default, you, you, you come across whatever that is. And then, you know, by the time you're full, you're like, oh, man, I still got that craving, but I don't feel very good now. You know? You know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever had that where you, you've got this craving and you, you can't identify it? That's how people are when it comes to spiritual hunger. 
They are starving for the word of God. They are malnourished, and yet they're looking for spiritual guidance in every place but the Bible. They're filling up on spiritual junk food. But when the Bible is taught in a way that people can understand it, people are drawn to it. People are attracted to it. Think of it this, this way. Let's, um, let's say that you were raised in a world with, uh, with nothing but junk food. Can you imagine the kind of conversations you'd have at the, at the dinner table? Hey, Mom, could you, could you pass me some more M&Ms? Uh, not until you finish your whatchamacallits. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. You'd, you'd have some weird conversation, and my, my kids are thinking, oh, man, that, that sounds like heaven. I don't know what, what place you're talking about, but I hope that I go there someday. Uh, but, you know, you, but if you were from a place like this where there was nothing but, but, but junk food, you wouldn't even realize that you had this craving for something really nutritious. And then one day, let's say you, you came across, you know, maybe the, the type of stuff that we have uh, on Thanksgiving, you know, a real meal, something that really has some nutritional value. We, we tend to over-nutritionalize on Thanksgiving, but, but you know, let's say that there, you know, you're a person who's never had any real nutrition. Don't you think that you would be drawn to that meal just because you needed that type of nutrition your whole life, and when you start smelling it, and I can't really speak to that because I don't have a sense of smell, but you start smelling the aromas, and you're like, wow, that smells better than peanut butter M&Ms, as if that's possible. I, I don't believe that that's possible, but you know, the sad reality is that we live in a world where we are surrounded by spiritual junk food. It's everywhere you look, and that's what people are using to try and fill their spiritual hunger when there is only one thing that's going to satisfy them, and that is the Word of God. The Bible. The problem is that our culture, our, our world, has rejected the Bible for one reason or another. Ultimately, sp- from a spiritual uh, standpoint, uh, I would say that it's because they hate God and they are rebellious against God. But you know what they'll say is, you know, it's it's an old, outdated book, or you know, it, it's been changed. So you know, how, how are you supposed to trust it, or you know, some other nonsense like that? But you know, it's not like they've taken the time out to actually examine its credibility and its reliability. And by the way, if you have questions about that, we're doing this. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist series on uh, every other Sunday, and we're going to be talking about that. And I don't think that you can look at the evidence. And come away not being completely confident in the authority and the reliability, the credibility of Scripture. Listen, if this nation is ever going to become anything other than a modern-day Babylon, we all see it going that way, don't we? If we're going to become anything other than that, we have to return as a nation to recognizing that the Bible is the only source of spiritual nourishment that can meet our needs that can satisfy our spiritual hunger. Thomas Jefferson, who was a deistic naturalist, that's a fancy way of saying he believes in a God who doesn't interact with humanity. Uh, He didn't entirely reject the Bible. You know, he's famous for having cut out all the miracles from his Bible. But he didn't entirely reject the Bible. He said the Bible is the cornerstone of liberty. He believed in it enough to say that. John Adams, who also signed the Declaration of Independence, said, suppose a nation in some region some distant region, should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? End quote. And I have to wonder how sad he would be 
to see that this nation that he helped found is a long ways away from being this utopian region that he had imagined because our country, by and large, has rejected God's word for one reason or another. Let's continue, verses 4 to 6. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. That was pretty good, huh? Better than the first time. Uh, (laughs) Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. They bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but man, after trying to, to go through these 13 names uh, of these guys who were standing beside Ezra, I want to know exactly who they are, and I want to hunt down their descendants. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know, I figure, you know, if I've tried to pronounce their names, I've already done the hard part, right? Uh, but unfortunately, we, we, we can't really be sure exactly who they are. We don't really know exactly who they are. It's uh, not very likely that they are priests, uh, as we're going to see in just a minute. Um, The Levitical priests are introduced as uh, Levitical priests. Now, these guys seem to be there either because they wanted a front row or, more likely, because they were helping Ezra handling um, the scrolls. And I love the response of the people here. Ezra blesses the Lord. He blesses Yahweh. And the people lift their hands shouting, Amen, which basically means it is true or or, let it be. And then they immediately fall with their faces low to the ground in an act of worship. And what a beautiful picture of worship to see all of these people just instantaneously and automatically doing the same thing. And, And Nehemiah obviously saw this. He recorded it in his book and he was obviously moved by it. I think that's probably why he did included in the history of the restoration of Jerusalem. You know, one of the, one of the reasons that people reject the Bible or, or uh, don't want to read the Bible is they say that it's too difficult to understand. And uh, I can sympathize. There are a couple different reasons that it can be difficult to understand. Number one, if you're reading it in a language that you don't speak. Um, you know, try reading the Greek and you've never taken Greek. Yeah, that's pretty tough. Try reading KJV when you don't speak Renaissance language, uh, you know, day in and day out. Yeah, it can be pretty tough. But the Bible can also be a little bit tricky in spots. And sometimes, sometimes it takes knowledge of the whole in order to understand a part. Uh, So it can get tricky. It's somewhat refreshing to know that actually the same issue existed for these people as well. Maybe they found it a little bit trickier or difficult to understand. Uh, So it gets read to them, and explained to them. So we continue, verses 7 and 8. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they could understand the reading. And that doesn't mean that they are going from one language into another. It means they're reading it 
in their native tongue, and maybe they've got some questions about it. Maybe they're not, you know, completely understanding it because, you know, like I said, sometimes you need to know the whole. And so these guys, the priests, would have known the whole, and so they're explaining the parts to the people. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that people either can't understand the Bible or, or maybe, maybe they find it boring is because they've never had somebody explain it to them properly so that it actually makes sense. And so they see that this, wow, this, this actually says something about me and about my life and the way that I'm supposed to be living. Wow. You know, one of my favorite responsibilities, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Bible study podcast guy, uh, one of my favorite things to do is go through the Bible and study the Bible and the privilege of explaining what this book means and how it can apply to our lives. And that's something, by the way, that I don't take lightly. Uh, from, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking a week, maybe two weeks, sometimes longer than that in advance. I'm thinking of how does this apply to my life? How can I tr- uh, it, translate this, to use Nehemiah's word, how can I translate this so that it can be understood by absolutely everybody? It takes a lot of work. It's not something that can be taken lightly or casually. We can all recognize when a sermon was prepared Saturday night or Sunday morning before the guy comes up to the pulpit. I've been there. I've seen that happen. And you can tell. It shows. It's not something that can be taken lightly or casually. In fact, I would almost say that maybe one of the reasons this country is so quickly turning away from God is because of the way that it's taught. Maybe it's because there are very, very few teachers who have actually invested in it and tried to make it interesting. It's interesting without you even trying. It doesn't take a lot of work. But finding the application, it, that does take some work. See, when people see how God speaks to them through his word and how his word applies to them, they will find it interesting and they will find it satisfying. And I'm not saying that I've mastered it. I plan on learning and, you know, reformatting my style uh, as needed. You know, there, there are, this is, my style isn't a sacred cow. I'm willing to change however I need to change. And I hope that all the pastors out there who might be listening online would be willing to do the same thing. We've got to have the same heart. We've got to make it clear to the people so that they can understand it. Because when they don't see how it applies to them, they will look elsewhere to have their spiritual needs met. And I can't even tell you how many sermons I've sat through that were more like self-help seminars, except they're free. You know, you can just walk in instead of paying 150 bucks or, you know, whatever it costs to go see Tony Robbins speak, or I don't know. But so many sermons I've sat through were more like self-help seminars, and that is not how the Bible should be taught. You guys may know that I call that Home Depot theology after Home Depot's slogan, you can do it, we can help. Uh, this type of preaching will attract a lot of people. In fact, you know, some of the big churches that you might see on TV, that's how they draw people in. Home Depot theology, man-centered theology. If you listen to the sermons, it's really more about men. It's really more about people than it is about the glorification and the worship of God. Good biblical teaching. We'll start by asking three questions. And I want you guys to write these three questions down because we're going to have a pop quiz at the end. The three questions that good biblical preaching will answer every single week are, number one, what does this passage say about God? Number one, what does this passage say about God? 
Number two, what does this passage say about me or humanity in general? What, what does it say about people in general? Number one, what does it say about God? Number two, what does it say about humanity? And number three, what's the difference between those two? What do I need to change in light of this passage? So write these down and remember them because we're going to have a pop quiz later. Now, don't get me wrong, by the way. Uh, It is important to know what the Bible says, but it's more important to know what it means and how it should affect our lives. The psalmist said, Your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. That's Psalm 119, uh, verse 105. Uh, And, of course, that was a a line that was made famous by Amy Grant's song. Uh, Everybody's probably heard it. Anybody want to sing it for us? I'm just kidding. (laughs) There you go. You guys know it, see? <laughs> exactly, that, that's how it goes. Everybody, uh, at least from the older generation, you, you younger ones, may not have heard it. Well, I'm, I'm including myself there, by the way. Uh, anybody who's, who's older than, than 30 probably knows that song, because it was huge. It was, it was really big. Uh, I didn't mean to call you guys old, because I know the song. So if anything, I'm, I'm condemning myself and saying, man, I'm, I'm getting old. Uh, I've dated myself. Uh, now you guys know my secret. I'm, I'm not young. Um, but the image of this verse, the image that we get in this verse, is of a person who's walking in complete darkness. And the only way that they can avoid stumbling, the only way that they can find their way is to have a light shining on the path. What's going to prevent them from walking over a cliff? What's going to prevent them from walking into a, a hole or you know, stubbing their toe on a rock? Light. Light is going to guide their way. What will prevent you from going astray in life and walking off the edge of a proverbial cliff? God's word. God's word. But it's got to be taught in a way that we understand it because light doesn't do much good as far as you know, illuminating a pathway if a, vision's, uh, or if a person's vision is impaired. What happens if you're, if you're driving you know, in the middle of the night and it's foggy and you've got all the light in the world from your headlights. It reflects right back in your face. It's just as good as driving in the dark. Similarly, if the Bible isn't taught in a way that we can understand it, we remain as good as blind. Let's continue with verse 9. In verse 9, we're going to see this incredible reaction of the people to having the Bible explained to them in a way that they can understand it, in a way where they see, wow, this, this speaks to my life. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, what could have possibly caused the people to be weeping? The proper exposition, the proper teaching of the law, which shows us just how messed up we are, just how crooked we are, just how corrupt we are. The world tells us that we're good, but when we open up God's word, it says that God looked down upon the earth and he said, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good. The world tells us, oh, you know, just just follow your hearts. But the Bible, when you open up the Bible, the Bible says that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? And when you wrap your mind around this reality and you realize that the God who created you and the God 
who loves you and the God who is calling you has a completely different set of values than you do. And he's not going to change. It will break a person upon realizing that they have willfully chosen a path that leads away from God rather than leading to him. It breaks a person's heart. When Isaiah saw the throne of the Lord in heaven, his reaction was to be terrified, was to cry. Woe is me! I am ruined! See, when you, when you really understand God's word, that's one of the first things you will come to understand. By our own doing, on our own, every single one of us is ruined. The hurt, the pain that we feel in, feel in our lives was our own choosing and was our own doing out of a state of brokenness. We've made bad decisions because we didn't know better, but we willfully chose those things. See, we live in a world that teaches that happiness is the greatest good. And by the way, happiness is just another word. It's a euphemism for hedonism. We live in a world that teaches that happiness is the greatest good, but when you read the Bible, you see that that is a lie, that that is not true, and that holiness is the greatest good. Happiness is not the greatest good. Holiness is the greatest good. And what heart-wrenching sadness it is to realize that hedonism is actually one of the names of the roads that leads people right away from God rather than leading them to Him. And that once you're on that road, there is no turning back unless you're willing to surrender your life for the sake of finding a new one by God's grace alone through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ alone. See, if you look at our world today, our culture, our nation has become morally numb. We don't have a sense of sin. We, we, we don't even believe, you know, our culture will tell you there's no such thing as sin in their minds. The greatest offense in our culture's eyes is to deprive someone of hedonistic pleasure and happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. Happiness is great. I, you know, I like being happy. Uh, in fact, right now, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sad. You know, I'm pretty happy. My mom came into town last night. My daughter's birthday's in two days. Yeah, life's pretty good. Happiness is great, but in the right context. It's got to be in the right context. You know, people will say, well, you know, to each their own, as long as nobody else gets hurt. But nobody thinks that it's okay for a person to mutilate themselves. Right? Nobody would say, oh, you know, I'd love for my kid to be happy. They can do whatever they want. You know, if that means, you know, slashing up their arms, nobody says that. We don't really believe that happiness is the greatest virtue. Society doesn't really believe that happiness is the greatest virtue. The Word of God corrects this type of thinking, that happiness is the greatest good. And it teaches us that holiness is not only the greatest good, but that the holier we are, the happier we'll be because we'll understand the context. And so the people here are weeping, but they haven't heard the good news that awaits. And so Nehemiah reveals that there is good news in the midst of this brokenness. We continue in verses 10 to 12. Then he, that is Nehemiah, said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. You see, the word of God is like this double-edged sword in that it can bring incredible sorrow, incredible heartache, but it can also bring incredible joy. The joy of the Lord is found in one word, grace. Grace. God offers us grace. Yeah, we've messed up really bad. Yeah, we've offended God. We've made Him mad. We've violated every standard of godliness and every standard of holiness that God has set forth. But the good news is that God has offered us a chance for a new beginning. Everyone will come to the point where they want a new beginning at some time or another in their lives. But only God can truly give somebody a new beginning. And it doesn't require that we jump through all these hoops and do this and do that and do all these things. And you look at all these other world religions where you have a checklist of things that you got to do to be spiritual. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God is a heart that is devoted to Him and that just trusts Him. And that's simple enough that a child can do it, but it's difficult enough that grown adults will stumble all over it just trusting in Jesus alone. Just trusting Prior to Jesus, such as in the time of Nehemiah, uh, it was the same thing, by the way. That's how people were saved then, too. And that is by trusting God, trusting that his word was true, trusting, by the way, in in the book of the law, it does say that God will send one to make things right, to restore. And by trusting in that promise, trusting that the Messiah was coming, that's how people were saved, that he alone would restore the broken relationship between God and humanity. That's how people have always been saved. God's standards have never changed. The joy of the Lord is this overwhelming joy that we experience when we realize that God has given us a solution to the sinfulness. God has given us a solution to the brokenness that has plagued our lives since day one. And what is that that solution? By learning to think the way that God thinks. And by learning to love the way that he loves, by learning to uh, uh, love the way that he loves and love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates, to value the things that he values. And we do that by submitting ourselves to his will and by immersing ourselves in his word because any, any ideas that we have which are contrary to what we find in God's word, our, our ideas are, are this stuff down here. Garbage. It's just junk. Filler. God's word is the solution. That's where we find answers to our deepest and most profound questions, and that's where we will receive the spiritual nourishment that every single one of us has a hunger for. The psalmist said this in uh, Psalm chapter 107, verse 20. He said, He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Not his destruction from their destructions, things that they had brought on themselves. How were they healed? Anybody? How were they healed? Sam? Grace. Grace, but by God sending his word. That's what this says. God sent his word, and so they were healed. How were they delivered from their destructions? By God sending his word. By God sending his word. No wonder the people threw a festival. They found the solution. They found the cure to all the problems that they had faced. Let's continue. Verses 13 to 15 in Nehemiah 8. 
Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They had found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. One of the points that I think Nehemiah is trying to make here is we're supposed to see that their hunger was satisfied on that day, but it wasn't something that, you know, oh, there you go, now you're good for the rest of your life. They were still hungry for it. It didn't end on that day. God always puts a hunger for his word into his people. God always puts a hunger for his word into his people because the more we want of him, the more we will want his word. Now, the feast of the seventh month, is called the Feast of Tabernacles, which was basically a reminder of the, uh, the Israelites' time in the wilderness, a reminder of, the, of their history. When God called them and delivered them out of Egypt, they had to travel through this, this really harsh desert, and their departure was kind of sudden uh, and unexpected by the people, and the people didn't have a whole lot of time to pack up all their belongings and to, to make plans. They just had to trust. There's that word again. They just had to trust. But where were they going to find shelter out in the wilderness? Moses was told by God that they were to construct booths for shelter. And then God commanded that they do this once a year to remember. Why? To remember that they were sojourners, uh, that this world is not their permanent home. Man, what a, what a great reminder for us because it's so easy for us to lose sight of that fact. It's so easy for us to think, man, this, this is my home. This is where I am. This is where I'll always be. No, this world is not where we will spend eternity. It might, it might feel like it sometimes, um, especially when you're having a rough day or facing a, you know, a pretty steep mountain, but no, this world is not our homes. The reality is that our homes and our possessions will not come with us to the grave and that God has something better in store for us than anything that we've got in this world, anything that this world has to offer. We are just passing through. The beautiful thing that we should see in this passage, however, and this is the main point, the beautiful thing is that once they had wept and, and then, then they had rejoiced, they were eager to be obedient to what God had commanded in his word. Let's continue, verses 16 and 17. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in, the cor- in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. Now we saw in our, in our lesson last week that Joshua didn't pass the proverbial baton. And as a result, Judges chapter 2, we see that the, the sons of Israel start worshiping other gods. They start falling away and uh, acting on their own accord instead of acting in God's will. And so what, what happened? How many generations passed 
where they didn't observe what God had commanded. We, you know, we don't know. There are a lot of generations between Joshua and Nehemiah. That's all we can say. We can't be exactly sure how many, but obviously it was several hundred years until this instruction was followed again after Joshua's generation. So what we see here is that Israel is being slowly restored. Slowly but surely, they are being renewed, spiritually renewed. After a long period, long period of falling away, they're finally getting back on track. But what's going to keep them there? We're going to find out in the next verse. Verse 18, he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So let's tie all this together. First of all, the people thirsted for God's word. They had this spiritual hunger, and they they realized that the only thing that was going to satisfy it was God's word, and they received their fill. They wept over the realization that they had not lived in a way that pleased God. Or honored God. But then they rejoiced because they heard and understood God's plan of redemption and renewal. And they came to realize that God was their refuge and their real source of true joy. And this led them to act in obedience to God's word. And they wanted more of it. Every day, they wanted more and more and more of it. Now, I had promised that we would have a pop quiz at the end of our lesson today. So, who's ready? Okay, a couple hands went up. Okay, what's the first question that should be addressed when we are talking about teaching uh, from God's Word? What's the, what's the first question? Good. What does it say about God? What does this say about God? Anybody? What, what does this passage that we've covered today, what does it say about God? God doesn't change. Okay, what else? Say it again. He gives us a hunger for his word. Right, that's, that's what this passage says about God. What's the second question that we ask? Okay, what does it say about humanity? Man is hungry for God's word. Very good. What's the third question? What's the difference? What changes need to be made? Exactly, and wh- how would you answer that? Exactly. Spending time in God's Word. Pastors out there, I hope anybody who's listening online, you know, this, or it's potential pastors, if you want to be a pastor in the future, this is what your sermons should, <laughs> should say. It's, it's really this easy, and then you just come up with a creative way to explain it. You see, what we see here is that they read the Word of God daily, just soaking it up as much as they could. Because, listen, there, there's no substitute for getting into God's Word every single day. You need it. I need it. All of us need God's Word every single day. We face problems every day. We face difficulties and challenges and obstacles every single day. And God's Word, the Bible, is the only solution for us. It'll transform our lives like nothing else will because everything else, honestly, is spiritual junk food. The Bible will teach us to think like God thinks. It'll teach us to value what God values. And if more of, people's, uh, more of God's people would do this every day and see that their spiritual nourishment is just as important as their physical nourishment, the world would be a better place. The world would be a better place. God's Word teaches us how to live and love, and it teaches us what to value 
and what to reject. So feast on it, rejoice in it, and be obedient to it. Be shaped by it, because this is where true restoration and true renewal begins. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would increase our awareness of this hunger within us for your word. And God, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that what I have taught up here today would be understandable to those who listen. Lord, I thank you that your word transforms lives. And we pray, Lord, for the continuing restoration, the continuing transformation that your word would have on our lives. Make us more like you. Teach us to love like you love, to value what you value because of what we find in your word. We love you, and we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to make us more and more and more like you. You are the one who makes and is making all things new. So renew our passion for you and for your word. So much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.